I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 8. Jeremiah chapter 8. We'll look at chapter 8 and verse 4 through chapter 9 and verse 26, or through the end of chapter 9. This morning, the sermon is entitled, The Folly of an Uncircumcised Heart. Would you give your full attention now to the reading of God's living and active Word? You shall say to them, to them, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, when men fall, do they not rise? If one turns away, does he not return? Why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I have paid attention and listened, and they have not spoken rightly. No man relents of his evil, saying, what have I done? Everyone turns to his own course, like a horse plunging headlong into battle. Even the stork in the heavens knows her times, and the turtle dove, swallow and crane, keep the time of their coming. But my people know not the rules of the Lord. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors. Because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown says the Lord. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Why do we sit still, gather together, let us go into the fortified cities and perish there? For the Lord our God has doomed us to perish and has given us poisoned water to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. We looked for peace, but no good came, for a time of healing, but behold, terror. The snorting of their horses is heard from Dan at the sound of the neighing of their stallions. The whole land quakes. They come and devour the land and all that fills it, the city and those who dwell in it. For behold, I am sending among you serpents, adders that cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, declares the Lord. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold, the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past. The summer is ended and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? 
Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them, for they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their bow like a bow, or pardon me, they bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves, committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them. For what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor. But in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? I will take up weeping and wailing for the mountains and a lamentation for the pastures of the wilderness because they are laid waste so that no one passes through and the lowing of cattle is not heard. Both the birds of the air and the beasts have fled and are gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a lair of jackals. And I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Who is the man who, who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? As the Lord says, because they have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubborn, stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the mourning women to come and send for the skillful women to come. Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are ruined. We are utterly shamed because we have left the land, because they have cast down our dwellings. Hear, O women, the, the word of the Lord, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach to your daughters a lament, and each to her neighbor a dirge. For death has come up into our windows. It has entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets, and the young men from the squares. Speak, thus declares the Lord, the dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field, like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. Thus says the Lord, 
Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, as we've just sung, your word is more precious to us than gold. It is sweeter to us than honey. For man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You have given your word to feed your people. And Father, we pray that you would indeed open our mouths and feed us this morning. Grant that your word might be nourishment for our souls. Circumcise our hearts, we pray. Make our hearts tender toward you and toward your word, that we might delight in you and delight in the things in which you delight. Teach us the way of godliness, we pray, and direct our eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ, the only man who's ever lived upon the earth who was perfectly godly in all his ways, the one who gave himself up for us in obedience to you, that we might have life and salvation through him. We pray that the Spirit He's poured out upon His church might be at work upon upon us now as His Word is read and preached. In Christ's name, amen. Well, beloved, thus far in Jeremiah's prophecy, we've moved from the prophet's call in chapter 1 to the Lord's identification of Judah's problem. You remember in chapter 2, her lack of love for him through her idolatry, to his proposed solution to that problem in chapter 3, namely reconciliation through the grace of repentance, to a foretelling of where all of this is ultimately headed in chapters 4 through 6, of course, a prophecy about his judgment executed against them through the Babylonian invasion, to his exposing Judah's habit of presuming upon his grace through hypocritical worship, as we saw last time in the great temple sermon of chapter 7. And this week, we find the Lord continuing His pronouncement of judgment at His house, at His temple, as the people stream in to worship Him. But this time, this time with a focus on the folly of an uncircumcised heart, particularly, as we'll see, among the leaders at the temple those prophets, those scribes, those priests who were supposed to teach the people the Word of God. He'll follow this in chapter 10, as we'll see next week, Lord willing, with a focus on the folly of idols. And so we have a focus on the folly from, on folly from within via an uncircumcised or unregenerate heart in chapters 8 and 9, followed by a focus on folly from without 
the uh, false gods in chapter 10. The Lord summarizes His message in this section in chapter 9 and verses 23 through 24 when He says this, "'Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And so we'll divide our text along those lines into four sections. The first, chapter 8 and verses 4 through 12, where we see the folly of trusting in one's own wisdom. The second, chapter 8 verse, and verse 13 through chapter 9 and verse 6, where we see the folly of trusting in one's own might. The third, chapter 9 and verses 7 through 22, where we see the folly in trusting in one's own riches. And then the fourth, chapter 9 and verses 23 through 26, where we see the wisdom of trusting in the Lord. So let's begin in that first section there, chapter 8, verses 4 through 12, where we see the folly of trusting in one's own wisdom. Look again at verses 4 through 7 with me. The text says, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, when men fall, do they not rise again? If one turns away, does he not return? Why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I have paid attention and listened, but they have not spoken rightly. No man relents of his evil, saying, what have I done? Everyone turns to his own course like a horse plunging headlong into battle. Even the stork in the heavens knows her times, and the turtle dove, swallow, and crane keep the time of their coming. But my people know not the rules of the Lord." The Lord appeals here to images from the natural, visible realm in order to make a point about the supernatural, invisible realm. He does this through a series of rhetorical questions in which the assumed answer is yes. First, He appeals to what happens when a person physically falls, asking, do they not rise again? The natural course of things when a person falls is not that he would remain on the ground, but that he would get up. Second, he asks, or he appeals to what happens when a person takes a wrong turn while on a journey, asking, does he not return? Again, the natural course of things when a person takes a wrong turn is to return to the right path, not to continue down the wrong path. But in Judah's case, though they've fallen and though they've taken a wrong turn spiritually, they've refused to get up. They've refused to return to the Lord. They refuse to listen to Him. But nonetheless, He Himself has remained faithful to them. He's remained faithful to His covenant promises. He has listened to them. And He remains ready to receive any who will repent before Him. But they refuse to say, What have I done? They might grieve, as we'll see in a moment. They might grieve the punishment that they have to endure because of their sin. They grieve the consequences of their sin. But they're not led by their sin in the grace of God to examine their hearts and say, what have I done? The Lord appeals to images here in order to, uh, visible images in order to explain what's happening 
in the invisible spiritual realm. The Lord then appeals to two more images from nature, one from the earth and the other from the heavens. First, he compares Judah to a horse plunging headlong into battle. There's the beast of the earth. Such war horses have been trained to fear their owners more than they fear the enemy, often to their own destruction. In the same way, Judah has been trained to fear the loss of her sin more than the living God. She's like a trained horse running headlong to her own destruction. And second, he contrasts her with the birds of the heavens. The birds know their times when they should come and go, migrating here and there. And if they were to forget their times, what would happen to them? If the birds failed to migrate north at the proper, proper time or south at the proper time, they would die. But, the Lord says, my people know not the rules of the Lord. They know not the rules of the Lord. God gave His law to His people to remind them of their times, when they ought to approach Him in worship, during the great feasts, migrating, as it were, out of their homes in the land to Jerusalem, to His house at the temple. Of course, the most regular of these holy days was the Sabbath day, the weekly Sabbath. And of course, that holy day continues into the new covenant era. That's what we're doing here today. We've migrated out of the world like birds. We've migrated from our homes to the house of the Lord. But the house of the Lord isn't really this physical location here on earth. It's actually the spiritual temple of the Lord. And God's people migrate to that temple as they gather in worship throughout the world today. If we were to fail to do this, if we were to fail to remember that we're to approach God in worship regularly at His times, then we would be practicing self-destruction. In these images from the visible world, the Lord teaches us again about the nature of the invisible world. And the way sin corrupts the soul. Sin makes us weak. Like a person who falls and can't get up. Sin makes us dumb. Like a person who takes a wrong turn and yet keeps traveling in the same direction anyway. Sin makes us reckless and self-destructive through misplaced fear and ignorance, like a horse plunging headlong into battle or a bird forgetting when it ought to migrate. Verses 8 through 12, let's look again at the text. The Lord continues saying, How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord so that wisdom... So what wisdom is in them? Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors. Because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall 
fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. So the Lord now calls the leaders of Judah specifically out directly for the way that they have trusted in their own wisdom. They've said, we are wise. The law of the Lord is with us. But they've spoken a lie. They have spoken a lie. And notice how this has happened, beloved. Don't miss this. The Lord tells us how this happened. He says, the lying pen of the scribes has made it. What's the it? It's the word of God has made it into a lie. So the scribes who were charged with producing faithful copies of God's word, rather than making faithful copies, corrupted them, whether by adding to them or by taking away from them. In other words, they changed God's word to make it say what they wanted it to say, which is the same as rejecting it altogether. Though they were supposed to be scholars of Judah, Because they've rejected the fountain of all wisdom, they've acted foolishly and will therefore be put to shame, dismayed, and taken, taken in the end. The Lord describes their punishment in terms of giving their wives and fields to conquerors. And thus we see the Lord once again foretelling the Babylonian invasion. And finally, the Lord repeats word for word what he said previously in chapter 6 and verses 13 through 15, summarizing the way everyone from the least to the greatest, from prophet to priest, deals falsely, believing the lie that there can be peace while they persist in their idolatry, greedy for unjust gain. Their hearts are so hard, so hard, Their consciences have been so hardened that the Lord says they don't know how to blush. They don't even know that they ought to be ashamed. And so when he executes his judgment, he says they will all be overthrown. These who have uh, taken upon themselves the, the role of leader over God's people, they will all be overthrown. Look at the second section, chapter 8 and verse 13 through chapter 9 and verse 6, where we see the folly of trusting in one's own might. So now we move from a focus on wisdom to a focus on might or power or vitality, we might say. Look at verse 13. The text says, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from them. So whereas in verse 8, the Lord focuses uh, on the leaders' trust in their own wisdom, He now turns His attention to their trust in their own might or vitality. As Jesus' parable of the wicked, as in Jesus' parable of the wicked tenants, if you remember, the Lord describes Judah as a vineyard And he himself is its owner. And as in Jesus' parable, the Lord pictures himself coming to his vineyard in order to gather his harvest. But there's no harvest there. There's only withered leaves. The Lord then laments the condition of his vineyard 
He laments the condition of his people, saying, What I gave them has passed away from them. Though the Lord gave them all that they needed for life and godliness through faith union with him, they turned away from him and followed after other gods. In other words, they trusted in their own might. They trusted in their own power, their own vitality. And thus, corporately speaking, they withered and died. Look at verses 14 through 17. The text says, Why do we sit still? Gather together. Let us go into the fortified cities and perish there. For the Lord our God has doomed us to perish and has given us poisoned water to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. We looked for peace, but no good came for a time of healing, but behold, terror. The snorting of their horses is heard from Dan at the sound of the neighing of their stallions. The whole land quakes. They come and devour the land and all that fills it, the city and those who dwell in it. For behold, I am sending among you serpents, adders that cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, declares the Lord. The Lord now pictures the people of Judah reacting to his judgment because they've refused to be gathered by him to receive his covenant blessing. Verse 13. They must now gather themselves together in the futile attempt to escape his covenant curse. They gather into the fortified cities and they grieve. They grieve the fact that the Lord has doomed them to die. They grieve that he's given them poisoned water to drink. They even acknowledge that he's done these things because they've sinned against him. But notice the nature of their grief, beloved. As we've already seen in our series through Jeremiah, it's not, it's not a godly grief that leads to repentance, but a worldly grief that leads to death. In other words, they don't grieve the way their sin has dishonored God. They don't, they don't search their hearts and say, what have I done before the God who's loved me? But they only grieve the way their sin has discomforted them. And in this We learn an important lesson, beloved, that we grieve over our sin is far less important than how we grieve over our sin. It's like a child who loves to disobey until she gets caught and receives her punishment. She may grieve the punishment that she's brought down upon herself and therefore reform her ways for a time. But does she grieve the dishonor that she's brought upon her father and her mother with her sin? What does the fifth commandment say? The fifth commandment doesn't say, children, do everything you can to avoid the punishment of your parents at all costs. That's not what it says, is it? It says, children, honor, honor your father and your mother. If she only grieves the pain of being disciplined, then her heart hasn't actually been changed by it. Only when she grieves the dishonoring of her parents has her heart been changed. And what's the difference ultimately, beloved? What makes the difference? Well, the difference is love. It's love. 
The only way a child can truly grieve dishonoring her parents is if she genuinely loves them. That's what's missing in the people of Judah. Except for a small remnant, which the Lord has kept for himself, Judah doesn't truly love her God. And that's why, though she says she's previously looked for peace and healing after God executed his judgment against her, because she didn't look for those things in the Lord, but instead looked for them in herself. She only found unrest and terror. And that terror came in the form of the Babylonian army, which the Lord describes much like the plague of fiery serpents that He sent among His people during the Exodus. They will be inescapable this time, however. Look at verses 8, or chapter 8 and verse 18 through chapter 9 and verse 1. The text continues, My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold, the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past. The summer is ended and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Now at this stage in the prophecy in verse 18, Jeremiah begins to speak for himself. He begins to speak for himself to be sure what he speaks is the inspired word of God. But now, rather than God directly addressing his people, he addresses them indirectly through the heart of his prophet. We see the same kind of indirect address throughout the Psalms as various prophets bear their souls before the Lord. The great Protestant reformer John Calvin called the book of Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, by which he meant that the Spirit, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who searches the hearts of men, the hearts that are deceitful above measure and unable to be understood by the creature as long as he remains in the estate of sin and misery, as we're going to see in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. The Spirit who searches the hearts of men has given us an infallible account of the hearts of men. And why? Why has He done that in the Psalms? And why, does he, why is He doing that now with Jeremiah? Well, He's doing it to cure us of hypocrisy. To cure us of hypocrisy. That is what the Lord is doing through Jeremiah as Jeremiah bears his soul before the Lord. As Jeremiah expresses his grief, he is showing the Lord God through the prophet is showing his people what godly grief born out of true love for God and neighbor actually looks like. He's showing it to them, you see. Now the first thing to notice in Jeremiah's expression of grief here is that he takes no pleasure in the message of judgment 
that he's been charged to preach. It's very important to realize that, beloved. Like the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 and verse 3, Jeremiah is essentially saying, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Dear brothers and sisters, I fear that too often we entertain thoughts of joy and delight in the Lord's judgment against sinners. No doubt a time for rejoicing will come on the last day when God openly vindicates His elect. We see this very clearly in Revelation chapter 19. But until that day arrives, we ought to weep. We ought to weep over the thought of even one sinner suffering that hellish end. Jeremiah first describes his grief in terms of what it costs him. What it costs him, namely his joy. The joy is gone from his heart. And then he describes it in terms of what it's done to him, saying it's made his heart sick. He overhears the tragic dialogue between Judah and the Lord. Judah asks, is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? To which the Lord responds, why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? To which Judah then responds, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. The prophet then describes his heart sickness in terms of a wound. Of a wound. The wound that Judah suffers for her sin has in turn wounded Jeremiah. Wound begets wound. It's a grief. Jeremiah's grief, his heartfelt grief for the people of Judah. is born of genuine love for God and His church. So not only is God showing His people what godly grief looks like, He is showing them by His grace what genuine love for Him and for neighbor looks like. Now think about how that is contrasted or contrasts with what follows. Look at chapter 9, verses 2 through 6. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they are all adulterers, like a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. They proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother. For every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. There's a description of hell, beloved. That's a description of hell. Hell on earth, we might say where the hearts of the people are devoid of love, true love for one another, because they're devoid of true love for God. 
Let us not forget what the Apostle John teaches us in his first epistle. We love. And he doesn't just mean love God. He means love one another. We love because he first loved us, you see. And so what we see here is that Judah is by and large devoid of love for God and neighbor. And what we see from the prophet is righteous anger. There is such a thing as righteous anger. We see such anger when the Lord Jesus cleanses the temple during His public ministry. The Apostle Paul also speaks of this kind of anger in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26 when he teaches the church saying, be angry. That's a positive command. Be angry. But then he quickly follows, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. There are at least two qualities, two qualities that distinguish righteous anger from unrighteous anger. The first is grief born out of genuine love for God and neighbor. Anger is righteous when it is tempered by grief, by love toward its object. This kind of anger is made possible when one understands that sin not only galvanizes sinners unto rebellion, but victimizes them unto death. In other words, righteous anger simultaneously grieves because it's born of true love for God and neighbor. Unrighteous anger knows no such grief because it knows no such love. Unrighteous anger is born of self-righteous vengeance. The second quality that makes anger righteous is its transience. Its transience. This is what Paul means in Ephesians 4 when he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Righteous anger is always away from home in the loving heart. Unrighteous anger, on the other hand, makes its home in the self-righteous heart and soon bears children in its image like bitterness and rage. And so having felt grief, having felt grief over Judah's sin, saying, oh, that my head were waters in my eyes, fountains of tears, Jeremiah, now feels righteous anger toward the same, saying, oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them. He then describes their sin, not as previously in terms of a wound to be healed, but a rebellion to be quashed. Their rebellion has expressed itself in the way that they've become thoroughly unfaithful to one another at all levels in society. Rather than honoring one another by being true to one another, husbands to wives, wives to husbands, businessman to businessman, neighbor to neighbor, They've been treacherous toward one another, deceiving and oppressing one another while refusing to know the Lord their God. And that brings us to the third section where we see in, verses, in chapter 9, verses 7 through 22, the folly of trusting in one's own riches. The folly of trusting in one's own riches. Look at verses 7 through 11. The text says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Behold, I will refine them and test them. For what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. And with his mouth, mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor. But in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? I will take up weeping and wailing for the mountains and a lamentation for the pastures of the wilderness because they are laid waste so that no one passes through and the lowing of cattle is not heard. Both the birds of the air and the beasts have fled and are gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a lair of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitants. So the Lord now invokes the image of riches as he appeals to the metaphor of refining precious metals to describe the way he's about to test his people. Their tongues speak lies saying peace to their neighbors while they plan ambushes in their hearts. In other words, they are swindlers. They are swindlers. As he said back in chapter 8 and verse 10, from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for, uh, for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. Such swindling is the result of covetousness. The people of Judah worship and serve the Lord's gifts as if the gifts themselves are the giver. And thus the Lord concludes with a rhetorical question he's already asked on two previous occasions in Jeremiah's prophecy. Shall I not punish them for these things? And the implied answer, of course, is yes. Yes. He must. He must. And don't miss this, beloved. Were the Lord not to punish them for these things, He would become like them. He would become like them. He would become a liar. He would become an unrighteous covenant breaker because he has told them clearly in his word, this is what you will receive if you turn away from me into idolatry. And so he'll vindicate his righteousness in the execution of his judgment against them. And since he was unable to gather any grapes from his vineyard, you remember back in chapter 8 and verse 13, He says he'll take up or gather weeping. He'll gather weeping, wailing, and lamentation instead. This is the fruit that is born from sin, left unchecked by grace. He'll lay the land to waste and make its cities a desolation. In other words, what he's saying is the covenant curse, the covenant curse that he clearly laid out for them in his law, in Deuteronomy and other places, will fall upon Judah for her idolatry. The Lord makes this connection clear in the next few verses. We might be tempted to think, why can't the Lord just be a little more kind? Why can't He just say, oh, it's okay. It's okay if you worship images, if you worship other gods. It's not really a big deal. It's not really a big deal. We might be tempted to think that. But why is that not the case? Why is it actually unloving Not to check sin. In other words, not to halt it, not to stop it. Why would that be unloving? Well, because sin leads to death. The moment a person turns away from the Lord, he has turned away from the source of all 
goodness, all love, all joy. Would you want to live as someone who has no ability to actually love? The only thing that can happen in that situation is you collapse into yourself like a, like a star that's dying, you see. There's, there's no ability to reach out and to actually love someone else. And even more tragically, there's no ability to receive love from another in that kind of a situation. There is only me, 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 you see. What is mine? And what you eventually find after the delusion is gone is there is nothing. There is nothing. Look at verses 12 through 22. It's a large portion. We've got to get through it though. Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, because they've forsaken my law that I've set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it. And here it is. But they have followed or stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. Therefore... Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known. And I will send the sword after them until I've consumed them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider and call for the mourning women to come. Send for the skillful women to come. Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a sound of wailing is heard from Zion how we are ruined. We are utterly shamed because we have left the land, because they have cast down our dwellings. Hear, O women, the word of the Lord and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach to your daughters a lament. And each to her neighbor a dirge. For death has come up into our windows. It has entered our palaces. Cutting off the children from the streets. And the young men from the squares. Speak. Thus declares the Lord. The dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field. Like sheaves after the reaper. And none shall gather them. So the Lord once again asks two rhetorical questions. Whose assumed answer is no one. And then... He asks, why the land is ruined? And he answers, because of Judah's idolatry, because their hearts went after the Baals. Their hearts went after a fertility, prosperity cult, you see. Because they trusted in their own riches. They thought they could enrich themselves according to their own wisdom, according to their own power. Though the Lord held out to them, The true good food. This is just like in the Exodus. God sent manna from heaven for them. And what did the people do? They looked back with eager longing to the cucumbers and the garlic they had left behind in Egypt. They refused to receive from His hand the good food that He provided for them. They refused to worship Him in the way that He prescribed. Receiving the atonement for their sins which He had provided in the sacrificial system, all of which, of course, pointed forward to the coming of the great sacrifice 
the one who can truly atone for our sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so because they trusted in their own riches, worshiping Baal, this fertility, prosperity cult, he says he will feed them with bitter food. He will feed them with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. The Lord Jesus spoke of this same temptation to chase after the things of the world, thinking I can enrich myself. I can nourish and protect myself. He spoke of this same temptation in Mark chapter 8, saying, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Well, there's only one who can feed the soul, and it's the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Indeed, the Lord's judgment will be so severe upon Judah, he calls the mourning women to come and wail over Judah, describing what has happened as death coming up to their windows, entering their palaces, and cutting off the children from the streets and the men from the squares. Does that sound familiar, that image of death? passing through the cities, going into houses. Here we see a kind of anti-exodus, don't we? It's the exodus in reverse. Whereas during the exodus, the Lord saved Israel from the final plague of death through the blood of the Passover lamb. Now because Judah has forsaken the Lord's gracious provision. Because they refuse to offer up the Passover lamb. Death will overtake them. And so the Lord commands the mourning women who up to this point have spoken lies like the rest of God's people to finally speak the truth. He commands them to finally speak the truth, but it's too late. What is the truth He commands them to speak? He commands them to speak this lamentation, this dirge. The dead bodies of the men shall fall like dung upon the open field, like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. It's very similar to what we see in Philippians chapter 2 from the Apostle Paul when he says, every knee on that day when Christ returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. In the end, all people will speak the truth and know that it's true in their hearts. But only those who have been saved by God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have had their sins forgiven, who have been justified in God's sight through the imputation of Christ's righteousness to them, only they will speak that truth with joy, with celebration. Everyone else will speak it knowing this is the moment of their eternal condemnation. And that's what we see with these women That brings us to the final section, chapter 9, verses 23 through 26, where we see the wisdom of trusting in the Lord. Look at verses 23 through 26. We'll finish up. The text says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. And there were many in the ancient world who practiced circumcision. 
not just the Jews, Egypt. Now, beginning with Egypt, you would expect Egypt, Edom, the sons of Ammon, all those bad people out there. But no, notice where he goes next. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised. Not in the flesh. All are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. In heart. The Lord concludes with a summary of what He's just said. He, he just, he's just described the way the leaders of Judah boasted in their own wisdom, in their own might, in their own riches, and so now He offers His correction. Rather than boasting or trusting in themselves, which is folly, the, ho- the height of folly, they ought to boast in Him. They ought to trust in Him that they, that they understand and know Him. And why? Well, because He is the source of all good. I am the Lord, He says, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. And so, if they, if the people of Judah are to truly love, if you, beloved, are to truly love and therefore be just and righteous, you must know the one who is love, justice, and righteousness. These are the things in which God delights. And if you are to delight in them, then you must first delight in Him. And if you are to delight in Him, you, like Judah before you, must be cleansed of your sins, which is what circumcision signified and sealed in the first place. It is the cutting away of the corruption of the flesh. And so the Lord says they must be circumcised in their hearts. They must be circumcised in their hearts. That's a circumcision that only God, by His Spirit, can perform. And so, I ask you this morning, beloved, in what are you boasting? In what are you trusting? What is the center of your life? Are you boasting in your own wisdom? Do you think very highly of yourself and your own ability to work through whatever intellectual issue it may be, thinking this is true wisdom? Do you boast in your own might? Do you think I am especially powerful? I am especially vital, lively. Do you boast in your own riches, thinking whoever has the most money at the end wins. We had the, we had the cooms over this past week, and the kids were playing the game of life. You ever play the game of life? I saw them playing the game of life, and I knew the answer, so I went ahead and asked just to make a point. Who wins the game of life? In that game, in that board game, it's the one who has the most money at the end. How backward is that, beloved? Isn't that exactly what our culture teaches us? It's not a bad thing to be wealthy. 
It's not a bad thing. God grants to us temporal gifts. And we ought to be thankful. We ought to also be very careful, be very careful not to put our trust in temporal wealth. The Lord Jesus spoke of this when He said, How hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Essentially what He's saying is, it's only by God's grace. It's only by God's grace that a person can be brought to genuinely believing Christ is worth everything else. Simply knowing Christ is worth the loss of everything, including my life. And you see, Paul was brought to that kind of mentality by the grace of God. We see it in Philippians chapter 3, don't we, in his little autobiography. I consider the loss of all things to be rubbish compared simply to knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, and the power of His resurrection. What are you trusting? Are you trusting in your own wisdom, your own might, or your own riches? Or are you trusting in the triune God who is the source of all wisdom, all vitality, all power, and all wealth, genuine riches to all who call upon Him? I call you to trust in Him this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We pray that You would bless it to our hearts, that it might indeed penetrate our hearts and grant us strengthening in the faith. Would You grant to us that we might be set free from the folly of trusting in our own wisdom, in our own might, in our own riches, that we might see the glory, the great wisdom of trusting in You. Father, we know that if we were left to ourselves, all of us would run headlong like that reckless war horse into hell, just as Your people Judah did in the days of Jeremiah. And so we thank You for Your grace by which You arrest us in our sin and transform us that we might genuinely love You and love our neighbor We pray that you would be at work within us to produce this fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy more and more within us. In Christ's name, amen.